following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke as we are picking up where we left off in our ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke. We've been in for quite some time now, and uh, we pick up today at verse 37 of Luke chapter 11. Verse 37 of Luke chapter 11. And as he spoke, referring back to uh, a lengthy passage that we've just finished uh, looking into and considering. As he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, that indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and Pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. And as he said these things to them, The scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Let's pray. Father, help us now as we we seek to consider uh, this portion of your holy word. We pray you would give us understanding. Give us hearts to be receptive to what you are saying to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as uh, we return today uh, to our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have these strong words that Jesus spoke uh, to the Pharisees. You know, whenever uh, upcoming movies are are advertised, the leading actor uh, or co-stars get, you know, the top billing. But the supporting actors 
uh, though they're not the main focus, they're important as well. For example, if you watch the Academy Awards, it's a big deal to receive the Oscar as the best supporting actor or uh, actress. The supporting role is very important for providing a, a foil or advancing the plot, heightening suspense, revealing information, and so on. Well, if we looked at the four Gospels like a movie or a play, clearly Jesus would be the main actor. He would be the uh, marquee attraction. But who are the principal antagonists who might justly be considered candidates for the best supporting actor or actors? Well, it's been suggested, and I think it's true, that a strong case could be made for the Pharisees. Have you ever noticed in your reading of the New Testament how often the Pharisees are mentioned? How often they've already been mentioned in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're not even halfway finished yet. Have you ever wondered why the Pharisees are given so much attention? Certainly, God didn't waste words uh, when he gave to us the Scriptures. So there must be important reasons why God's Word mentions them and describes them so often. What might that be? Well, before even attempting to answer that question, we need to be very clear on who the Pharisees were. Now, we might think of them as the bad guys. We're so used to hearing the term Pharisee uh, as a term of derision, we might just think that whoever they are, I'm not really sure, sure who they are, but uh, they are bad people, right? The Pharisees. And the term Pharisees has been certainly handed down to us as a derogatory term, but it's not quite that simple. Not quite that simple. The Pharisees were a social and religious party in Israel during the time of our Lord who in fact represented the best and the most conservative of the religious parties in Israel. Now there were a number of these groups, the Herodians, the Zealots, but the two groups that we most often hear of in the New Testament are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were often the foes of the Pharisees and vice versa. And who were the Sadducees? I think knowing who the Sadducees were, that will help us to better understand uh, who the Pharisees were. Okay, the Sadducees, they weren't the largest of the Jewish religious sects, but they were the most politically powerful. They could be described as the religious aristocracy, the upper class. And they had recognized very early that if the Jews were going to survive the Roman occupation, they would have to learn to get along with the Romans, to compromise. Indeed, their roots go back to before the Romans as they were the party who gravitated toward the Hellenizing of the culture or uh, the acceptance of the Greek influences in the culture that we were learning about in Daniel chapter 11 just a few weeks ago. And so that's where, when they began to exist, this party called the Sadducees. And during the time of Christ, the Sadducees had established very close ties with the Roman government in exchange for political position, power, and wealth. They were the politicians, the schemers. When it came to religion, the Sadducees were what we might describe as theological liberals. For example, regarding the Old Testament, they only held to what was written in the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected all teaching about a future resurrection of the body. When a person dies, that's the end. They rejected any concept of future rewards and punishments. Uh, 
they denied the existence of angels. So the Sadducees were the theological liberals of that day. They were political opportunists and theological liberals. And they, by the way, they were also the party of the high priest and his family. Now, for any serious Bible-believing Jew, the Sadducees were definitely the bad guys. And certainly, uh, we might say they were bad guys, just as we might think of theological liberals and compromisers today as bad guys. But the Pharisees, you see, were basically the opposite of the Sadducees. Unlike the Sadducees, in the minds of many of the, of the people, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were mostly a lay movement that put great emphasis on seeking to be moral and upright in behavior, on keeping God's law and the oral tradition handed down by the rabbis. Most of them were laymen who had risen up to reclaim the Jews as the people of God's word. They were determined, as it were, to get back to the Bible. And they had a major part in establishing and ordering the synagogues where the Jews would gather to worship and to study the scriptures. They were the chief proponents of a strong Bible-based education. They also protested. They were, in a sense, kind of like Protestants. They protested against the corruption of religion. And unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the body. They believed in angels, in the final judgment, rewards and punishments. They were the theological conservatives. They were generally considered to be the most holy people in Israel. They were the good people, we might have thought. In fact, we might have thought that these were the folks that Jesus would enjoy and that he would appreciate more than anyone. And let's be honest, the Pharisees were most like us or more like us than any of the other Jewish religious sects of that time. And yet the Pharisees are set before us in the Gospels on the whole as the enemies of Christ and the Gospel and as those Jesus confronts and exposes and reproves more than anyone else. You may remember when back in Saul and David's day when the women sang, uh, Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. Well, someone has said that sin has slain its thousands, but self-righteousness has slain its tens of thousands. And indeed, Jesus reserved his harshest words, not for tax collectors and harlots and notorious sinners, but for the self-righteous Pharisees, the purists and theological conservatives of his day who were yet strangers to the grace of God and had replaced a true and biblical religion of the heart with a legalistic, ritualistic externalism that gave an outward appearance of holiness but was actually a terrible, soul-damning distortion of it. So back to our question. Why are the Pharisees so prominent in the Gospels? Why is so much attention given to them? Well, I think it's because they represent to us a great danger that our Lord is very concerned to keep us from falling into. The great danger of true religion gone bad. True religion gone bad. 
They stand as a warning to all of us, especially the church-going people. Church-going, Bible-believing people like you and me, they stand as a warning of how easily an apparent zeal for truth and righteousness can be perverted and distorted and how easily theological knowledge and outward conformity, even to Christian behavior expectations, as important as they might be, how easily these things can actually become a cloak for inward corruption, sinful attitudes, religious hypocrisy, and self-deception. So the Bible's description of the Pharisees is given to us in part, my dear, uh, dear friends, it's, it's given to us in part to be a mirror, a mirror by which we can examine ourselves, a mirror for religious people, for upstanding church-going people like me and like you, a mirror by which to examine ourselves and sadly, sadly too often to see ourselves painfully reflected in the picture so that we might be humbled and brought to repentance and brought off of all trust in our own righteousness and by faith in Christ alone be rescued from the kind of hypocrisy that can so easily deceive us. Now again, I mention all of this by way of introduction to this new section in our study of the Gospel of Luke we've come to this morning as again here we find Jesus pronouncing woes against the Pharisees. And then later against the lawyers or scribes, whom I'll introduce to you when we get there, they were kind of the allies of the Pharisees. These were the the theologians uh, of the day. Now, this is not a passage that most pastors would normally turn to when looking for a sermon. You know, you've been invited to the the Bible conference and such and such church or the men's conference or whatever, and... And they ask, what's your, to- what's your topic going to be? Well, I'm going to pre- uh, preach a, a, a series at the conference on Jesus pronouncing woes on people. <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not what you would ordinarily just choose to preach on. But one of the things, uh, this is one of the things I think is very helpful about expository preaching. By that I mean preaching through books of the Bible or large sections of the Bible uh, verse by verse or consecutively. It forces us to have to reckon with passages when we come to them. Instead of just kind of choosing little you know, sugar stick texts that we enjoy preaching on, preaching on what we come to next, including those that we might normal, not normally preach from. And it also makes it clear to those to whom we're preaching that we're not trying to pick on them. When we come to a passage like this, it's not that we have an axe to grind and, and you've know, been looking about to find a text on which to grind it. No, this is just the next passage, right, that we've come to. And since it is, we have to reckon with it, right? And what is God teaching us here? And lo and behold, often we find that such passages are more helpful and more needful for us than we might have imagined. Well, as we begin to look at this passage, it can be divided up under three major headings, okay? First, we have Jesus accepting an invitation to dinner. Then secondly, we have Jesus disregarding expected conduct. And then thirdly, we have this long section that we'll not finish this morning. We'll just barely get started on it, in which Jesus denounces religious hypocrisy. And there's two parts to that. He addresses the Pharisees, and then in the second half, he addresses the lawyers or the scribes. All right, so there's our divisions for our study of the passage. So first of all, we have Jesus accepting an invitation to dinner. Now, those of you who have been with us, remember the preceding context, which we considered in the message last week. People were demanding a sign 
from Jesus. They wanted more signs. In spite of all that he'd already given, but in response, Jesus said that only one sign would be given to them, the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights before being spewed out on dry land and then preaching to the Gentiles in Nineveh, a sign that pointed to our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, out from which then the gospel would be taken to the nations. This would be the last sign, he said, that he would give. And then you remember Jesus gave the illustration of the light being put, uh, the lamp being put where men can see it, and then also the inner light, the eye of the heart. We talked about that last week. He gave an illustration pointing to the fact that it isn't more signs <clears throat> that the people needed. They needed new eyes to see the light that was already shining all around them in the person and the teaching and the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and it was the blindness of their hearts in bondage to Satan and sin that was keeping them in the dark. Well, while he's saying all these things, as he is speaking, verse 37, as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. Jesus received a dinner invitation. It was a very nice thing for him to do, to invite Jesus into his home, and Jesus often accepted dinner invitations. We find him in the Bible eating with uh, you know, notorious sinners and being criticized for that, but he also ate with the Pharisees as well. We see, we've already seen several examples of that. He was not morose and unsociable, but Jesus got out there and he interacted with people. And he, he built relationships with people, and he did so, though, in a, in a certain spirit in order to, to, to speak truth to them, as he's going to do in this, in this situation. So he went in, presumably into the Pharisees' house, and sat down to eat. So we have Jesus accepting this invitation to have dinner in the home of a Pharisee. Secondly, we have Jesus disregarding expected conduct. Verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. He marveled that Jesus didn't wash his hands before eating. The Pharisee was astonished. He was, he was shocked at this. This was a terrible breach of good manners. It was socially unacceptable, but it was much more than that, uh, brothers and sisters. To really understand what's going on, we need to know that the real issue here was not personal hygiene. It was not about germs, okay? That's not the real issue here. The issue was ceremonial purity. This was a religious thing. For the Pharisees, it was about being holy and avoiding defilement. For example, while out and about uh, in the marketplaces and so on, one might have touched a Gentile or something that had been touched by a Gentile or something else considered unclean, and this defilement needed to be washed off before eating. It was a moral issue in the minds of the Pharisees. Therefore, before they had anything to eat, they would engage in a kind of hand-cleansing ritual uh, this is what was generally done and what was expected. It could sometimes be quite elaborate and meticulous, and it was supposed to be done in just the right way. And it was all about staying clean, ceremonially pure and holy. In their minds, if you're a godly man, <clears throat> you wash your hands in the prescribed way before eating. But Jesus didn't do it. And the Pharisee was scandalized by this. 
Now, we might think that, but Jesus, why couldn't you just kind of go along with this in order not to, you know, offend anyone? I mean, you are a guest in this man's house, and you know what the expectations are. It's, it's good manners when you visit a person's home to try to accommodate yourself to their wishes and ways. I remember when I was in China, uh, there you're, you were expected when you when you stepped into someone's home and took the front door to take your shoes off, and then you're supposed to put these little slippers on or, or little rubber sandals, and that's what's expected. Now, I don't normally do that when I enter my own home, but while I was in China, I always complied with that expectation so as not to offend anyone, even though that's not something I would normally do. Why, why be rude and offend everyone? Jesus, why didn't you wash your hands? Well, children, don't get the wrong idea, okay? <clears throat> that it's a bad thing to wash your hands before you eat in terms of personal hygiene, germs and sickness and so forth. It's a good thing, but that's not the point. The problem was that the Pharisees had elevated this tradition of hand washing to the level of a moral requirement, a command of God. But when Jesus did not engage in the traditional hand-washing ritual, you see, he wasn't violating a command of God. The only thing he was violating was a man-made rule that had been elevated by the people as a mark of true godliness. And I believe that Jesus did this on purpose. In fact, it's possible that most of the time Jesus washed his hands. But on this occasion, he didn't. Certainly knowing that it would provoke a reaction a reaction that would then provide an opportunity for him to address a serious problem. One of the things we see when we look at Jesus' earthly life is that he generally conformed to the innocent cultural traditions, the expectations of that time. He wasn't rude and uncouth or freakish in his clothing or in his manners, but there were occasions in which he deliberately violated accepted traditions to make a point. And this is one of those occasions. Jesus, while eating at the Pharisee's house, did not wash his hands. The law of God said nothing about washing your hands before dinner. It was a matter of indifference. Now, the, the law of God did have various ceremonial cleansings and so forth. And, and what the Pharisees did is they took that and they then extended it and expanded it. They were, they were big on being even more holy than the Bible is, you know. Or uh, to have so many fences around the law of God to make sure you never violated the law of God. You had these other rules and regulations to keep you from even ever coming close to doing so, you see. But it was really a matter of indifference. But for the Pharisees, by that I mean it was a non-moral issue. But for the Pharisees, it was a matter of right and wrong. It was a mark of true holiness. Now, before we move on to, to what Jesus said... In response to the Pharisee being offended, there is a lesson right here on the surface of this. As Christians, we, we need to learn. We have to learn and need to learn to tell the difference between the law of God and our own personal preferences or convictions. Now, you may have all kinds of opinions about a lot of things. Detailed things. Details regarding what people ought to wear and ought not to wear. What they should eat. Whole foods. Organic foods or 
or just whatever, whatever, as far as I'm concerned, whatever it is, you know, whatever you have, right? It doesn't matter, right? But maybe you've got strong convictions about conventional medicine, homeopathic, natural approach to health care. Should mothers breastfeed or bottle feed their babies? Homeschooling or Christian school or public school? Should, you attend, should a Christian attend a state university or a Christian university? Or does it depend? Political positions on this or that issue. Details on how best to respond to a pandemic. That's a big one, right? May have strong opinions about that. What sports are appropriate for your children or not appropriate? What should you do with your time off from work? Recreations that you engage in, recreational preferences and so on. Christians may have various opinions about some of these things, and some of them may be very strong opinions as to what is believed to be best, and we may believe that we have good spiritual reasons for them. The Pharisees certainly believed that they had good reasons for thinking that Jesus should wash his hands. But we need to be careful. There is a difference between human opinions and preferences and kind of unspoken codes of expected conduct. There is a difference between that and the commands of God. Now, when God in his word forbids something, the Christian is not to do it, ever. When God commands something, that's something that we must all seek to practice. And in regard to those things, we should encourage and exhort one another and sometimes even admonish one another when it comes to such things. But when God doesn't forbid or command something either explicitly or by necessary implication in Scripture, we have to be careful not to elevate our opinions or preferences or even what maybe we found works best for me or is helpful for me to to elevate that to the level of a divine command that we expect everyone else to conform to, or we accuse them of sin, or we look at them as not really being godly or as holy as I am. You know, I read some time ago about a missionary family who literally was forced off the mission field over peanut butter. That's right, peanut butter. They were sent to a location where peanut butter was not available. They liked peanut butter, uh, so they asked friends from the States to occasionally send them some peanut butter. The problem is that the other missionaries working on that same field, the mission field considered it a mark of, of a high level of spirituality and godliness not to have peanut butter. Now you think, how in the world could that have happened? Well, I'm not 100% sure, but I can, I can very easily see how that could happen. Perhaps this began with an earlier missionary who went there, maybe the first guy, kind of the the one everyone looked up to as as the the great pioneer who opened up this mission field, deciding as he got there, if there's no peanut butter here, I'll just accept it and deny myself, and I'll not trouble the folks back home by expecting someone to send it to me. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's commendable. That's a commendable approach to take. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is that over time, apparently, 
this personal opinion and conviction of this very highly respected missionary who was kind of a pioneer guy who opened up that field, that, that, that practice of his and that opinion of his, it came to be viewed in the minds of those on that particular mission field as a mark of true godliness. It was elevated to, the, to a level equivalent to a biblical command. Now, the newer missionary family rightly saw that that was merely a matter of differing opinions, not an issue of right and wrong. There was nothing sinful with having peanut butter sent to them, but the pressure to conform, it became so intense that finally they just gave up the work and they went back home. And indeed, brothers and sisters, this kind of spirit in a church over this or that thing or this or that indifferent practice or non-moral issue, it can be suffocating. It can be suffocating. I, I often think about our church, and I think when people come here, I, I want them to be a little bit, you know, surprised. They come here, and as they meet our people, and they get to know us, and they say, what is this that brings all of these people together? Well, they don't all dress exactly the same. They don't all necessarily educate their children in exactly the same way. They don't all, you know, have exactly the same view on every particular political issue. They don't all wear their hair exactly the same and all look like they were just, you know, cookie cutter, cut out of a, with a cookie cutter and everybody looks exactly. What is it that brings these? There's all different races here in our congregation, people from all different parts of the world and countries. What is it that brings them together? Well, may they have to say the thing that brings these people together is their love for Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel that brings them together, you see. Sadly, we can think we're being holy because we're keeping some man-made standard when we're actually sinning against God in all kinds of ways, including in our attitude toward others who don't follow our preference. The same is true when it comes to human traditions. Now, tradition is not a bad word, okay? In and of itself, it's not bad. Traditions of various kinds are indeed necessary, or we really couldn't function in this world. A tradition is something handed down to us, okay? Beliefs and customs and practices, ways of of doing things that have been handed down. That's what a tradition is. It's basic definition. And sometimes the word is actually used in a positive way in the New Testament. Sound doctrine, biblical principles and practices handed down to us in Scripture are a kind of tradition, good and biblical and authoritative tradition that must be followed. But traditions can also be indifferent things or non-moral issues. Patterns and ways of doing things handed down to us that are not commanded, nor are they necessarily bad either, but they're not Bible either. Not Bible. They're man-made traditions. And as such, they can be subject to change. Sometimes they may, they may be very helpful at one time and not very helpful at another time. Or one place and not in another place. They're man-made traditions, and as such, they're subject to change when it's deemed that they're no longer useful or helpful or perhaps have become a hindrance. The problem is that we can confuse Bible with human traditions because this is the way we've already always done things. It just feels right to us. 
It feels more godly. It feels more holy. I, I grew up in, in very, very um, strict kind of a church. And it was a great church. So I'm very thankful. But, but most of the men prayed with these and thous when they prayed. Now, and I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that at all. But I, I sort of had this idea in my mind as a kid that there was something more godly about that. Something more holy about doing that. Of course, the reality, more reverent, you know, the reality is when the Bible was translated, for example, the King James Bible, it wasn't translated with these and thousand in order to be more reverent. It was translated that way because that's the way people talked back then. It was, put, it was translated that way to be in the vernacular of the people, right? But that just seemed more godly, more reverent. And I've even, had, I've even heard people use that argument for, uh, for that you should do that. Well, where do you find that in the Bible? right? That's just a human tradition, perhaps, that someone has grown up with. And there, there are all kinds of things like that, that we could mention, that just feel right to us, maybe. But the reality is, you're not going to find scriptural basis for it, or warrant for it. And sometimes, the man-made traditions can actually stand in the way of our obedience to the Bible, instead of helping us to glorify God, Indeed, sometimes following man-made traditions can be mistaken for biblical holiness. And this can give a false sense that we're pleasing God and we're pleasing to God when in fact we're not. So Jesus accepts an invitation to have, a dinner in the home, have dinner in the home of a Pharisee. Jesus offends the Pharisee by disregarding expected conduct by not washing his hands. And now thirdly, we have this long section in which Jesus denounces religious hypocrisy. Jesus, you know, Jesus knows what this guy's thinking. Perhaps now we might expect him to uh, apologize. And to say, you know, I'm very sorry that I offended you, my friend. I know that you mean well when it comes to this hand-washing stuff, and I, I don't really agree with your perspective, but... But that's okay. We might expect Jesus, meek and mild, to be very sweet and apologetic and accommodating in this situation. But you remember what Pastor Johnson pointed out in the men's conference a few weeks ago and in the series of messages that he brought on conforming to the emotional life of Christ? You remember what he pointed out? He pointed out that sometimes the way Christ responded to certain things was not very Christ-like. Now, of course, he was saying that tongue-in-cheek, wasn't he? His point was that our understanding of what it means to be Christ-like is often not shaped by the Bible. We've drawn up a picture of Christ in our minds, or we've presented a, a picture of Christ in the church that's not true to who he really is, as revealed in Scripture. So, Pastor, are you telling us that Jesus sometimes sinned? No, not at all. Jesus was perfectly sinless, and that's the point, you see. When Jesus pronounces these woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, he's not sinning. His indignation at them, his strong reproofs, that was an expression of his deeply felt love for people and his devotion to the glory of God. What's driving Jesus here is his love for God. And his love for the souls of men. This is what is always driving him. 
throughout his life, including his emotional reactions to things. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he loved his neighbor, he loved others as himself. And he did so perfectly and sinlessly. And he knew that the kind of hypocrisy that characterized the Pharisees and was promoted by the Pharisees was distorting people's conception of who God is. It was casting reproach upon his father, and it was also deceiving and damning to hell both their souls, the Pharisees, and the souls of all those who followed their example. Therefore, Jesus doesn't hold back here. It's a bit shocking. I mean, you know, you are in this guy's home, right? He's invited you to dinner. You know, maybe you should... But there's intensity here. There's intense emotion here. There's a degree of sternness and sharpness in his words because Jesus knows what's at stake in this, how serious this really is. Okay? And his words are also for us here today. Or for believers, for his believing people. Because Jesus loves us, he's warning us and teaching us by exposing the kind of hypocrisy and self-righteousness that lurks within our own hearts. It's still there in some measure, even in those of us who are in Christ. There's a Pharisee in every one of us that we must be made aware of and see so that we might repent and be broken off from any temptation to trust in our own righteousness for acceptance with God, and be constantly driven to Christ and to the cross to find forgiveness in his blood and to seek grace and mercy from Christ, his spirit, to be more like him. And so how does Jesus respond to the Pharisee who was offended because he didn't wash his hands? Well, he uses it as an occasion to expose the folly and the danger of Pharisaic religion. Now, we're not going to have time to cover all these issues that Jesus addresses and all the woes that he pronounces. We'll have to come back to that next time. We only have enough time left this morning to just barely get started. And as we begin to look at this, let's pray, Lord, search me and try me and see if there is any wicked way in me. Show me the various ways in which I may be guilty of being like, a, uh, being like a Pharisee, okay? And again, my dear friends, the purpose is not to make, make us angry, you know, angry at Jesus or at the preacher. That's what happened to the Pharisees. They just got mad. They got angry at Jesus. That's not the purpose. The purpose is not to drive us to despair. The purpose is to drive us into the arms of Christ, where there is forgiveness and mercy for sinners who humble themselves and confess their sins, and there is grace to change us, not just in outward appearance, but in our hearts from the inside out, okay? Jesus makes four specific criticisms of the Pharisees in verses 39 to 44, and then down to verse 52, he follows with three specific criticisms of the lawyers or scribes, the theological scholars who are the allies of the Pharisees. Now, we only have enough time to barely look at the first one this morning. The rest will have to wait. As we at least get started looking at these, let's do it in this way, okay? With this question. How can I know when I'm being a hypocrite? 
or when I'm like the Pharisees? How can I know? What are the marks of Pharisaic religion? The first one that we'll just barely begin to look at today. Number one, when I am more concerned with outward appearances, okay, than I am with the inward condition of my heart. More concerned with outward appearances, how I appear before others, than I am with the inward condition of my heart. Picking up at verse 39. The Lord knows what's going on here. He knows the Pharisees, you know, flabbergasted that Jesus didn't wash his hands. So picking up at verse 39, then the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean. He's referring to various rituals that they practice again when it came to cleaning cups and dishes. And he compares that with the concern here about washing hands. And he's using it as an illustration of being very concerned about the outside, about appearances and outward behaviors only, or what we might call religious externalism. He says, you make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. You look good on the outside, and you work very hard at that. You work very hard at that, but your hearts are enslaved and in bondage to greed or covetousness, lust and to various kinds of wickedness, foolish ones. Did not he, God, who made the outside, make the inside also? In other words, are you so foolish as to think that you can fool God by your outward appearance when your heart is full of evil? God sees your heart. He knows what you really are. He knows who you really are on the inside. You may hide it from men, but you can't hide it from him. And it's the state of your heart, Jesus is saying here, that's more important. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. And then Jesus says, But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. Now that statement can be confusing. Why the sudden reference to giving alms? Well, I don't think he's talking about the outward practice of, of giving alms. Even that is an outward work. And, and Jesus, you remember, warned in the Sermon on the Mount that giving alms can be done with a wrong heart. But the phrase Jesus uses here could actually be translated, you may see this in the margins, some of you in your Bibles, it could actually be translated, give alms with respect to inward things, or what is inside. The word that's translated in the New King James, as you have, that verb is a form of the Greek verb, enemy, which means to be inside, within. So I agree with commentators who argue that what we have here is a figure of speech. And the idea is, give the things that are inside as alms. Give such things as are inside as alms. In other words, give first as an offering to God your inward man, your heart. Your heart must be given to God. And only when God has your heart... When your heart has been cleansed and devoted to him, only then will your outward actions truly be acceptable to him. So the focus is the heart. To be like the Pharisee is to be obsessed with outward behavior. And how you come across to others 
how you appear while neglecting the state of your heart. I remember when I was in college, there was a gym in the nearby town that I used to work out. I used to work out in, and sometimes I would see working out in that gym, Flora Hyman. Does anybody recognize that name? Okay, that was a long time ago. (laughs) All right, Flora Hyman was a tall female volleyball player who actually led the U.S. women's team to a silver medal in the Olympics in 1984. She appeared to be in great shape. She was a world-class athlete. But she suddenly died of a heart attack when she was just 31 years old. Everything looked great on the outside, but there was something wrong with her heart, right? Her physical heart. The famous basketball player, Pistol Pete Maverich, you heard of him? Again, maybe I'm dating myself. I need more modern examples, I guess. But he, he held numerous college basketball records. He then became an NBA star. But in 1988, while he was playing a pickup game in Pasadena, California, he died. And he was a big health enthusiast. His last words were, I'm really feeling great. But suddenly he died of a hidden heart defect. These are examples of world-class athletes who had the external appearance of exceptional physical health. Their well-conditioned bodies were able for a time to mask serious sickness on the inside. On the inside, there were fatal heart problems that eventually killed them prematurely. Well, you see, this can happen spiritually as well. Occasionally, we're stunned, aren't we? When we hear about some well-known pastor or preacher or some person we always viewed as an exceptional Christian, we're stunned, we're shocked when suddenly they're exposed as a fraud who's been living a double life or when they fall away into scandalous sins and perhaps even renounce the faith. What was the problem? They looked good on the outside. They looked great on the outside, but there was something wrong on the inside. Judas is the classic example of this. The disciples never suspected Judas. He was one of the 12. In fact, he was so trusted, they put him in charge of the money. He kept the money back for the disciples. Never suspect. When Jesus, in the upper room, when he said, one of you will betray me, they didn't say, oh, we know who that is, Judas. No, they didn't. They actually said, is it me? They were worried about themselves. No one ever suspected it. Judas was, he looked perfect on the outside. But on the inside, he was spiritually dead, right? Jesus is telling us here that it's the heart that is most important. It's the heart that God sees. It's the heart that truly reveals who you really are and therefore how foolish to be more concerned about your outward appearance and your outward behavior than you are about the condition of your heart. Now, my friend, I ask you, has your heart been made good by the grace of God? Have you been born again? Regenerated is the scriptural term as well. Born of the Spirit. Now, what's a good heart look like? What's it look like? 
The heart of a person who's been born of the Spirit, a heart of a person who's believing in Jesus Christ and, and, it, and is a repentant heart. What's it look like? Well, you remember that Jesus describes it for us. Do you remember where? Do you remember? The Sermon on the Mount. And we saw that in, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount as well. Jesus describes that heart. In the Beatitudes, do you remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's to feel that I am nothing and that I have nothing sufficient to commend myself to God's favor. And that I am utterly dependent upon his unmerited grace and his mercy in Jesus Christ for everything. That's a heart that is poor in spirit. It's the opposite of a disposition of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and self-righteousness. It's to know something of what Isaiah experienced when he saw a vision of the majesty of God, high and lifted up, and the cherubim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah was shattered, and he replied, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips." It's something of what the prodigal experienced in the parable of the prodigal son. When he began to be in want, he left his father self-sufficient and self-centered. But when he was bankrupt and destitute, the text says he came to himself. And in poverty of spirit, he came home to the father, empty-handed, no longer full of himself, but hoping for whatever his father might be pleased to give him. It's something of the experience of the tax collector in another of our Lord's parables, you remember, when he would not so much as lift his eyes up to heaven, but smote upon his breast and cried, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, when we who have trusted in our own self-sufficiency and our own goodness, and we thank God that we're not like other sinners, I'm a good person. When we've had our prideful mouths stopped, before God, so that we stand, as it were, before him, ashamed of ourselves. It's then that we've begun to know something of poverty of spirit. We see that we are poor, justly condemned sinners with no righteousness of our own to plead before God, that we are bankrupt debtors in his court, and our only plea is, God, be merciful to me. That, my dear people, is a heart that is poor in spirit. That's a right heart. There may be a lot of big churches around, full of a lot of people, but it's awfully hard to find people who have a heart like that in any real degree. Then Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Godly sorrow and grief over sin. Do we see people in the churches who show by their attitude and behavior a bleeding Savior I have seen, and now I hate my sin. In my heart, you see. I just pretend to do so. People who are serious about forsaking sin, who know what it is in secret to grieve in their hearts over their sins, and not just outward sins, but those things that nobody sees but me and God. In my heart. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. Those who have had their stubborn will broken. So as to become submissive 
to God and his word and gentle and forgiving in their attitude toward other people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. People who have a longing in their heart to be holy, to, to be holy not just outwardly, but in thought, in motive, as well as in practice. This is what they long for. This is what they pursue, you see. They never attain it perfectly in this life. So that at the same time, they put no confidence in their own righteousness for acceptance with God. The righteousness they need and long for to give them a right standing before God is only found in Jesus Christ. So all of their hope and all of their trust for salvation is in Christ and Him alone and His righteousness that is credited to us and received by the empty hand of faith. Jesus says, these are the blessed people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You see, those who have come to see how much they need mercy and how dependent they are upon God's forgiveness, they'll be merciful toward others. And they have a forgiving heart toward others. They're not hypercritical of everyone. They're not full, you have grudges and vindictive and... Blessed are the merciful. You see, that's the kind of heart that the grace of God produces in those who are in Christ, those who are born again and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And not perfectly, but really and truly. And he's working this in us and he's sanctifying us in all of these ways from the inside out. And if you know nothing at all of that, my friend, it doesn't matter how good you look on the outside. The outside of the cup may shine like the sun. The hands may be washed and clean. You may be at church every time the doors are open. Wear the right clothes, say the right words, read the right Bible, sing the right hymns, hold the right doctrines, memorize your catechism, stay away from bad places, only watch clean movies, attend Christian school, put your tithe in the offering plate, and all the rest. But if your heart is not right... It's all vain, and it will profit nothing. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our actions matter. Our words matter. But what really reveals who you are is the state of your heart. And so as I close, where is your heart this morning, my friend? When you look at your heart, do you see any evidence in yourself, for example, of those things Jesus described in the Beatitudes? Poverty of spirit? The recognition of your own sinfulness, your, your desperate need of God's mercy and God's grace? Have you been brought to see yourself as, as a justly condemned sinner with no righteousness of your own that you can plead before God that, that all of your hope and trust is in Christ, in Him alone for forgiveness and acceptance? Do you have a repentant heart that knows something of what it is to grieve on the inside over your sins? That I would sin in such, against such a gracious and good God. Do you know anything of that? Do you know something of what it is to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Do you know what it is to be merciful toward others? Are you a person that you, you just, you're just eat up with, with, you've got a grudge against this person, a grudge against that person, one conflict after another in your life? Do you have a merciful, forgiving heart? Could it be that someone here this morning has been content 
to outwardly appear Christian before men, but in your heart there's no reality. If so, may God help you to see it. That's the goal, right? It's not to drive you to despair, but that you might see it, that you might confess it, that you might humble yourself and run to Jesus Christ and say, oh, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. That's the beginning of a right heart, right? And he will have mercy upon you, and he will save you. Well, thank God for his word. Searching, searching word. We really just got started on this passage, and searching to me, brothers and sisters, not just to you. And so may God do his work in our hearts as we work our way through this portion of God's word. Well, I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then the pianist is going to come and pray, uh, play a postlude while our uh, baptismal candidates, you guys need to, to rush off and get prepared and then come back out, and then we'll go forward with that. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that, that you love us too much to just mess around with things, but you, you are faithful. Even in such a context, you spoke the truth, the truth that those who were at the table that day needed to hear the truth that every one of us need to hear. Help us, Lord, to receive it gratefully. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but to respond to your word in the ways that are appropriate regarding our own particular circumstances and situations. We thank you for the gospel. Without the gospel, we would have no hope. We would all be doomed. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his blood that cleanses us from all of our sins as we confess our sins before you. Now we ask that you would draw near to us as we have the blessed privilege today of hearing the testimonies of those that you have delivered from darkness and have saved by your grace. Uh, we pray that it would be a blessing to them and a blessing to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida.